woman Named after my mother My old man is another Child that's grown old If dreams were lightning Thunder were desire This old house would have burnt down A long time ago Make me an angel That flies from Montgomery Make me a poster Of an old rodeo Just give me one thing That I can hold on to To believe in this living Is just a hard way to go I think a lot of people are looking for one thing they can hold on to. Uh, that's John Prine singing. He is, in fact, one of the uh, current victims of COVID-19. Um, I haven't seen any updates on him lately. He's a man whose health has not been good anyway, so uh, it's very worrisome. But the John, you probably know the Bonnie Raitt version of that song better. This is Colin, by the way, and I'm here in uh, starting the third week of our broadcast from remote locations. I'm sitting here in our... Uh, radio studio at home, which over the weekend when, weekend was also temporarily a neonatal mice unit. There were baby mice who were kind of staggering around. It's so you feel bad about catching baby mice because they just they're looking at you going, "Are you my mother? Or should I just go with you?" And then you put them outside. God knows what happens. It's probably not a pretty story, but we've got worse things to worry about right now. Uh, and to do that, uh, we are, I should say also, I'm it's really, I woke up in this really angry mood. I'm just angry about all the misinformation. I'm angry about the lack of any kind of unitary leadership that you can trust on this. Uh, I'm angry about all this stupid stuff that gets said at White House briefings. And then while people are running around fact checking it, trying to establish how we can prove it's not true, then it gets walked back and you don't even know whether to whack that whack-a-mole mole or not. I'm angry about all this stuff. Later in the show, I'm going to talk to David Kessler. He might be able to calm me down. He's the author of five books, including On Grief and Grieving, Finding the Meaning of Grief Through the Five Stages of Loss, a book he co-authored with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And his latest book is called Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, I think. We're all looking for meaning. And towards the end, we're going to talk uh, to Ian Baruma about the way in which xenophobia and eth ethnic prejudices have been kind of twisted around to and, and, and made part of the, the coronavirus narrative, often by the president of the United States, with pretty significant consequences to, to our Asian population, too. So all of that. See, it's... <laughs> <laughs> going to be a lot to be grabby about. Joining us now is Greg Gonsalves. Uh, he's an assistant professor of epidemiology, co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership at Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for over 30 years. He's a 2018 MacArthur Fellow, an honor that eludes me year after year. I don't get the genius grant. Another thing I guess I could be angry about. Uh, but we've got a lot of things to talk about. Greg Gonsalves, welcome to this conversation, and thank you for sharing your valuable time. Happy to be here. 
So I, I think we really should, we do need to start with this problem, which is that, you know, as an epidemiologist, as an educator, uh, uh, you want to inform the public. You want to inform the, inform the public as best you can. But now you're in competition with not only things that the president of the United States and Deborah Burks, one of his advisors, say things that are misleading and occasionally just flat out untrue. But there's this kind of welling up of really bad punditry, ranging, ranging from David Katz, who is a doctor of nutrition. Um, he's a medical doctor of nutrition and diet books, but is suddenly an armchair epidemiologist, uh, a guy named uh, Richard Epstein, a legal scholar writing on the Hoover uh, Institute website. And these are all these blue skies scenarios that immediately get picked up by the president and his followers as proof that we don't need to be as proactive as we're being. Maybe you could say a little bit more about this instead of me just raging about it. So, you know, in normal times, uh, which this is not one of them, um, you know, in the context of a, a pandemic or a national emergency, you expect sort of um, measured, careful, um, evidence-based leadership from your leaders. Um, and, you know, this is an unprecedented epidemic. The only uh, real uh, analogous situation is the 1918 Great Influenza. But, you know, we've had the Ebola uh, outbreak in West Africa. We have the H1N1. And, you know, our public health establishment swung into to action and uh, reassured the public. Uh, and we were able to sort of um, all operate from sort of a, sh a shared base of information to, to move forward. Now we have the person with the largest bully pulpit in the country, or perhaps in the world, um, making up facts, um, uh, contradicting scientific consensus, um, and really confusing, you know, millions of Americans. Um, you know, we're not Democrats or Republicans um, uh, in terms of how we're we're going to be vulnerable to the disease, but 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 putting out information that confuses, you know, the people who look to you for leadership, really. Uh, risk putting people at, at, at in, enhanced risk for infection if they decide that they don't have to social distance because it's just like the flu or, you know, think that, you know, at the end of this week, as we get closer to Easter, that it's, it's, it's time to sort of uh, open up the windows, walk outside and sort of go back to your normal life. You know, so there's, you have the commander in chief making these sort of unfounded arguments. And then you have people sort of out in the periphery um, who always come out of the woodwork during crises. You know, they're profiteers in a certain sense um, who looking for attention at a time of crisis who tell people what they want to hear um, and reinforce what we're hearing from the White House. It's not so bad. Don't worry about it. It will go away. You know, we can, we can, we can have these quick fixes for something that uh, nobody in the scientific community think is going to, to be over anytime soon. Right. It seems to me that there's a particular narrative that has it's come from the president, but he has a lot of enablers, and some of them are right there in the mainstream media. Uh, I mean, I'm really, really upset at my own profession today, especially at the New York Times for this. But the narrative is this it's it's various shadings of this isn't quite so bad. It almost exclusively 
affects older people or people with underlying uh, comorbidities. Um, so we and, and meanwhile, there are significant consequences, some of them even bodily consequences to having a depressed economy with a lot of people out of work and people getting psychologically depressed. And so what we should do for that reason is to do a version of quantitative easing, where basically we ease a bunch of lower risk workers back into the economy. So we get it going again well enough uh, so that there aren't these other deleterious side effects to having a bad economy. And meanwhile, shelter this other group of presumably much more at risk persons. So we've heard this versions of this kind of from Trump, from Epstein, this guy uh, at uh, the Hoover Institution. We've heard it from David Katz, the nutrition doctor. We've heard it from Tom Friedman, who I I just can't believe is still a columnist and has three Pulitzers, but he's just anyway. So, I mean, uh, this is this is the dominant counter narrative right now. I think you'd agree. Maybe we need to say something about that. So, yeah, it's the dominant counter-narrative, and what's important to, to be said is it's not coming from people in infectious disease epidemiology. And, and the, the sort of, the, the, the sort of um, false dichotomy between uh, saving ourselves from coronavirus or saving the economy is a false dichotomy. And economists like Austin Goolsby, who is uh, President Obama's chairman of the, the Council on Economic Advisors, has said, you know what, the first rule of virus economics is stop the virus. And Larry Summers, who is Treasury Secretary, um, a whole host of other um, economists, Gabriel Zuckman, Emmanuel Saez, the consensus in the economic and the epidemiology community is the first matter of business is to stop this virus. Now, let's go back to sort of deconstruct a little bit of the sort of Katzian uh, notion of how we're going to control this virus. You know, first of all, he says that young people are, uh, are, are under lower risk for the virus, so let's put them back to work. I just you know, looking at the New York City mortality figures. And yeah, you know what? 0.17% of young people, let's say youngest between 18 and 44, um, are, are 1.7% will, will get sick. So if you have 1,000 people, that's, that's less than two people are going to de- develop serious disease. Now multiply that by a million, 10 million, or the number of million people we have in this country between 18 and 44 uh, years of age. Uh, which means we probably have close to 190,000 deaths in that group. So percentages, lower risk means something uh, in and of itself, but when you start multiplying it in terms of absolute numbers, you know, putting people back to work uh, among this younger group could expose a whole lot of people to, to, to serious life-threatening disease. Second of all, um, we don't know who's at really enhanced risk in the context of this disease. Yes, so it's, it's you know, my, my mother who's 86 years old or, or others who are senior citizens are at high risk, but we don't know what to constitutes an enhancement of risk in terms of underlying conditions. Yes, if you're immunocompromised or you're you're, you're on chemotherapy or or other frank immunosuppressive conditions, we need to worry. But there there are plenty of people in hospitals in New York right now in their twenties and thirties who who might otherwise be considered to physically fit and in the in the peak of health. Um, the other thing is is that um, you know how are we going to sequester you know the millions of elderly people in the U.S. and others at risk, even if, even if we took at face value the first point that Dr. Katz makes. Um, if we're talking about three, four months of, of sequestration, um, who's gonna, how are we going to take care of them? Are we going to quarantine their carers? Are we going to sort of cordon off neighborhoods so that trips to the grocery store don't become fraught with risk? Because remember, now we've let you know, 118 million people or more um, who are in these sort of safe age brackets 
um, uh, get infected because we don't consider them at high risk, but we've multiplied the force of infection. So every trip outside of the house for somebody who's at high risk um, becomes fraught with much greater danger than if we all do this together and children place together. The other last piece of I'll make is that, you know, we're not going to see a vaccine or a cure anytime soon. And seeding this virus throughout the, the country, um, you know, helps to, to sort of set it up for seasonal return. And everybody likes to say, oh, the flu isn't that bad. The flu kills hundreds of thousands of people, uh, it sickens hundreds of thousands of people each year and kills, kills you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, do we want to have a coronavirus and flu season next year in which we have sort of death upon death? Um, and this is the sort of Katzian argument, which, again, nobody who is an epidemiologist working on infectious disease supports it. And um, it has the, the distinct appeal that it tells people what they want to hear, that this is going to be over soon. It's not so bad. You're not under a lot of risk. And we've got it covered. The point is, is that we are in, we're facing the need for a national mobilization that we haven't seen, I don't know, since World War II. Um, in which we have to get to, we get, need to to band together to enhance our social distancing practices because it's not happening the same all over the country. Governor Ducey in Arizona basically refuses to to order uh, uh, businesses to shut and has made golf courses and hair salons uh, essential businesses. Um, so it's we are not doing this across the country in any sort of rigorous fashion across the board, um, and we need to scale up our testing services, which we have not done since December. So we're going to need more testing. We're going to make sure all the ventilators are there. And then in a few months, we can think about what to do next. Um, but um, when, we, when we're all pulled off track, like Dr. Katz and Tom Friedman and Richard Epstein have done, it really confuses what our national mission is together as a country to, 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 to get over this virus and, and save people from, the, from the, the ravages of both the disease and of sort of the economic impacts. Uh, I don't know how to break this to you, but golf courses are open here in Connecticut. Um, and even though we've taken some other fairly stern measures, but golf courses are open. And just to give you kind of a sense of how poorly understood this is, one of the modifications the golf world has made is to raise the cup up to the, so it goes up above the level of the of the green. The idea being all you have to do is hit, hit that thing because they think that the big worry would be taking your ball out of the inside of the cup. They think that that's how you would get coronavirus. That's a very unlikely way from what I've read for coronavirus to spread. But being very close to one another, talking back and forth on a golf course, maybe not so safe. Um, it's all these little things. So um, I, there's also a way in which the, the most responsible, ethical, and cautious medical scientists, people like you, you're also in the position, you're like people trying to do a police sketch of a person going by on a very fast train. You're trying to understand this virus in real time uh, with a limited amount of data. So, for example, you, know, you talked about the flu. One thing that we know, one difference we know about the coronavirus versus the flu is there's a much more higher rate of hospitalization per infect group of infected people with coronavirus with this coronavirus mm -hmm. than there is with the flu but i feel like with so little testing and so little information we don't know really whether that number is like 19 percent of infected people wind up getting hospitalized 10 percent, 23 percent. i mean mm -hmm. isn't that the kind of thing we kind of don't know yet well this is this is the achilles heel of our current moment you know we had since december to prepare for this and to scale up our testing efforts uh, to identify active disease and to you know to get an antibody test on board too, so we could identify those who were exposed and 
and potentially recovered. Um, so we're flying blind through this epidemic because we still don't have enough tests to go around uh, to, to to simply diagnose anybody. You know, if you if you if you feel sick, you're not told to go to the hospital to get a test. You're supposed to stay at home because we, you know, there's we don't we don't want to use precious medical resources that we don't have. And so the fact that we don't have testing out there means we really have no sense of the extent and depth of of the the epidemic in the United States, where where the hot spots are, where the where the the, the less hot or cooler spots are, and so um, if we're trying to think about when we get out of this sort of period of social distancing, it's really going to depend on a sort of massive, massive scale up of testing, uh, and we are not there yet in terms of the production of the tests. Uh, we're not there in terms of thinking about how to operationalize it and and get people tested who need to get tested, and so um, we're we're working. Uh, with the best information we have, you know, uh, public health epidemiologists and infectious disease epidemiologists always are working with partial information, right? Um, but, you know, the question is, do we have enough to do what we're, you know, to make the recommendations we're doing now? Um, yes, we do. We, we have more than enough information to act and to, to, to continue these social distancing measures until we see a, uh, a substantial reduction over time in cases in Connecticut and elsewhere around the country. I was looking, and I'm sure you've looked at this too, this, these maps that the Harvard, Harvard Global Health Institute has put together, kind of running multiple scenarios. What if it's 40% of the population infected over 12 months? What if it's, you know, the same number over six months or 18 months and then a different percentage rate? And it's really clear when you look at those, assuming that, that they've got it right or as close to right as anybody can get it, that this really is kind of a 12 to 18 month proposition, at least in terms of trying to limit the rate at which people get infected that if you get you know 40 percent at 12 months already you are as we're seeing well right now we're seeing medical systems that are being overrun and that's going to be a very widespread phenomenon if it moves too fast so the interesting thing is um, the American Enterprise Institute um, under Scott Gottlieb put out a report yesterday or this morning talking about you know the four phases we're going to go through to, to get to the end of this sort of period in our history. Um, and the first one is the one we're in now, where we really are dealing with the sort of brunt of the the epidemic, and I haven't even seen the peak of deaths yet. Um, and, you know, as I was reading the report and thinking about, you know, the second phase where we do this massive scale-up of testing, where this massive scale-up of personal protective equipment, that we've actually been able to sort of uh, deal with the backlog of people in hospitals and clear the ICUs. Um, you know, when you think of that kind of uh, uh, sort of um, moonshot, that kind of Marshall Plan, that kind of Manhattan Project, you realize we are, we are, we are nowhere near that yet. And, um, getting to that sort of level of buildup is going to take, you know, not weeks, but months. Uh, as you think about the sort of the outward, uh, phases of the, the proposal that the, that Scott Gottlieb and his colleagues put together, uh, which requires sentinel surveillance and all these sort of other things to be put into place to ensure that we don't have a resurgence of the epidemic, you realize that we are talking about, you know, uh, over a year, over 18 months to finally be at the end of this, um, you know, once and for all. And again, we don't know if it's going to be returned seasonally, um, which is, which is the, the risk that, uh, the fear that I, that really sort of preoccupies me at the current moment, but it is, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, an Easter uh, resurrection for the for the, for uh, for the American public to go outside and sort of return to normal. This is going to be a long haul. It's something, and it's a kind of sacrifice that we're not used to in this country. That sort of the greatest generation and our grandparents and our great grandparents had to do way at the beginning of the 20th century. 
Um, the other thing I think it's important to talk about right now is this notion that miracle drugs are about to come onto the market or already exist, uh, particularly maybe we should talk about the anti-malarial drugs. These things that already exist or are about to arrive and they are going to provide therapeutic treatments, not vac- vaccination, but uh, something that will ease symptoms. It seems as though an awful lot of false hope and maybe even dangerous off-label use is being ginned up right now. So, you know, I was around during the AIDS epidemic and worked with ACT UP in the early days. And, you know, I remember in the 80s, people were, were mixing egg lipid concoctions in their bathtub as they were using blood thinners like dextransulfate, all in sort of grasping at straws to, to save our friends and, and loved ones. And so I get the desperation and the fear and the, the sort of wishful thinking that's happening around, um, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine or even some of the AIDS drugs that they're saying might be effective against. Uh, the coronavirus. But as Dr. Fauci, uh, who, who, who came of age during the AIDS epidemic like I did, realized, is that there's no easy answers. You know, we're going to have to put these drugs into clinical studies to show that they work. Uh, and, and right now what we're working on is anecdotal data. It's, you know, somebody heard that this doctor did this or he had 10 patients who did well on this drug. You know, it, it, it's a characteristic um, occurrence in the early stages of, of uh, the advent of a new disease where people are grasping at straws because the, the, the admission to yourself that, you know, you can't sort of shout a cure into existence is something that's, that's hard to accept because it means, you know, lots of people are going to die. You know, I'll let you go here, but just one paradox that struck me this morning, uh, although these are not perfectly analogous, but you know, in a way, the free flow of information and the, the open source work that scientists did, especially in the early stages of this, the sequencing of the genome of this thing by mid-January is just crazy. It's crazy fast and crazy brilliant. And one of the ways that it was possible was because of open source work and even these uh, data, these open databases where you can deposit uh, information. And, and all of that's been great, and there's been open source work towards the vaccine, too. The problem is, <laughs> the paradox, I guess, is that the other kind of open source free flow of information uh, has a lot of noise and not much signal. And a lot of that noise in all the ways that we've just been talking about is either misleading or really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing to sort of um, speak about in sort of, uh, sort of praiseworthy terms is the way the scientific community has sort of rallied together, how healthcare providers have put themselves on the line over the past few weeks and months, and the sort of sort of generosity of spirit that many Americans are showing right now in terms of their willingness to sort of shelter in place, to not necessarily protect themselves, but to protect you know the people who mean a lot to them, their their grandparents, their neighbors, their community, and so it's an important thing. Yes, the sort of open source. Uh, the open source science and data transparency movement has is, is allowed us to share genomes and share information in real time. Um, and the inter- you know, at the beginning of the AIDS, uh, epidemic, you know, if you wanted to share information, you snuck into a medical library or, or you had to pay a hefty price to get access to a medical journal. Now, nowadays, the information is right out there for all to see, but it comes like a fire hose. And so you get the Richard Epstein, the David Katz, the Tom Friedman's with all the great stuff that scientists and, and physicians and healthcare workers are doing around the world. All right, Greg Gonzalez, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know you're busy right now. Assistant Professor of Epidemiology, co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership at Yale School of Public Health, uh, an AIDS activist uh, and a MacArthur Fellow. Thanks very much for spending time with us today. 
My pleasure. All right, so we're going to take a break. We are now going to talk about, we are then going to talk about the palette of your emotions, uh, many of which are sad or worried. And what do you do with all that grief and fear? You might have heard me say before the news that um, my son and I uh, have lunch together. He's 30. Uh, we have lunch together you know, usually on Saturdays, um, pretty much every week. Sometimes there's another meal in the middle of the week, dinner. And of late, all we can do is meet. We have one particular place where we like to meet. It's very pretty. And for the most part, you know, not populated. Uh, and we walk around. But there is a kind of sadness that hangs in the air about that, a kind of I think it's not unfair to call it grief. Uh, and I'm sure all of you have different versions of that. I also, well, anyway, David Kessler is joining us. He's the author of five books, including On Grief and Grieving, Finding the Meaning of Grief Through the Five Stages of Loss, a book he co-authored with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. His latest is Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. He's the founder of grief.com. Uh, thank, thank you very much, David Kessler, for being with us today. Glad to be with you. So I just have to confess at the beginning, because I know this is one of the stages. Today is an anger day for me. I'm just really angry. I mean, I'm not just angry that this is happening, but I'm angry at the way that it's unfolding. I'm angry angry about the misinformation that's been uh, out there, uh, the way in which really important public policy aspects of this have been bungled. And I can't seem to calm down <laughs> about it today. And I suppose... You, you tell me, but I suppose that's probably just something that's to be expected, that there are going to be really angry days. Absolutely. And one of the things that you may be finding and so many people are finding is they're sad, they're angry, they're upset. And what our mind does is it says, all right, but I shouldn't be angry or being angry isn't helpful or being sad is a waste of time. And we sort of suppress the emotions where the truth is, if you were to just let yourself be angry, just be angry about this. The anger would move toward through you and subside at a certain point. But we're a self-help generation, and one of the byproducts of that is we have feelings on feelings. We get angry and then think we shouldn't be angry. So my advice is to... Feel what are what we're feeling, so it will move through us because emotions need motion. You know, we're going to be using the word grief here a lot. I think people also think when we talk about having feelings about feelings that I can't call it grief if if some if somebody really close to me hasn't died from from COVID nineteen. I can't really call it grief. It's more, because I'm sitting here in my nice house doing my job. Um, what business do I have arrogating an emotion like grief to myself? How would you respond to that? Well, this is something I was dealing with before this, and I deal with every day in my work, is that unfortunately we make the mistake of comparing grief. Look, the reality is a loved one dying 
is one of the most challenging griefs and losses we face in our life. So, but we also know that when a divorce happens, that's also a loss. When a job loss happens, that's also a loss. That's grief. So it's, you know, it doesn't have to compare to someone dying. It can stand on its own. Um, I think that people sort of realize the word is limited, that it covers so many things, because grief is ultimately a change we didn't want. And that's what we're all feeling is a change we didn't want. The other thing that I would mention in this moment is the reality is that new book that I've written came out of my experience of my younger son dying unexpectedly. So I'm a bereaved parent. And as a bereaved parent, I can certainly say I have my pain and my loss, which is just horrible. At the same time, when I hear about someone whose wedding got canceled that she's been planning on since she was five years old, I don't want to take away her sadness either. You know, when people say, which grief is the worst, my response is yours. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if your son can't graduate, that's his worst grief. And for us not to sort of get into the let's compare them. Right. Your stuff is your stuff, uh, as, as sometimes right. said. So, um, and, and you having graduation canceled may be the worst thing that's ever happened to your, you know, 18-year-old. Right. And they get to be sad about that. You know, I'm interested in the new book. Um, I'm an intermittent churchgoer, and, but when I am going to church, um, people ask me why I go to church. And I say, well, because it's a moment— to pause during the busy week where you're just sort of getting through tasks and making sure that you have a certain amount of fun and, you know, but it's a moment to pause and say, well, what does this all mean? You know, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean that we're going to die someday? What is it, what is it, this whole thing of being human? What does it mean? And, and you, I think, suggest that grief is one of the ways that we may begin to assemble our own answer to that question. Absolutely. And the reality is, you know, I was so fortunate to work with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on her uh, adaption of stages of dying to stages of grief. They are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. We always say that they are not linear. They're not a map for grief. Your grief is as unique as your fingerprint. But I do think one of the things I was fascinated with when I was in my you know, the depths of the pain around my son was I looked at people like Viktor Frankl, who was in concentration camps and found the light in the darkness. And we know that every tragedy that's happened, whether it's been the AIDS epidemic or war, there's absolutely post-traumatic stress that comes out of it. But there's also post-traumatic growth. And that's what I want to help people find is more of that post-traumatic growth after this. And what meaning can we find during this? I live on a street where I see something I've never seen. Children are playing with their parents in their front lawn. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really good byproduct of this. 
Absolutely. And, and I mean, even beyond that, certainly those scenes that we've seen, they, they started in China and Italy, but they happen all over America now where people are assembling on their lawns and singing a song together yard to yard or doing something like that. Like, these are sort of amazing moments of, of bonding, but they're also accompanied by the fact that this is kind of, for a lot of us, it's sort of an in-between time. And, and we, I think our emotions change all the time. We've, we have no way of preparing for this nothing like this exactly like this anyway has ever happened i was reading this letter uh, from italy by a, an italian novelist francesca melandri it's really worth reading and she writes it she says she's writing it from the future italy being the kind of the future uh, of for a lot of people living in other places and one of the things she gets into is sort of changing emotions and extreme emotions she says many of you will fall asleep vowing that the very first thing you'll do as soon as the lockdown over is file for divorce many children will be conceived. Your children will be schooled online. They'll be horrible nuisances. They'll give you joy. Elderly people will disobey you like rowdy teenagers. You'll have to fight with them in order to forbid them from going out to get infected and die. You'll try not to think about all the lonely deaths inside the ICU. You'll want to cover with rose petals all the medical workers' steps. And David, you know, that's another thing that's happening here is that our feelings are fluctuating all the time here. It's not a pure experience of just loss. There are ways in which I think we're brought closer together. There are ways in which our admiration for certain people, like these medical workers, are heightened, you know, in, in a way that we wouldn't feel on an ordinary day. And I don't know if there's anything that you can say about that, but I, I feel like so much of this is not one emotion, but 20 emotions, some of which don't even make sense in concert with one another. Well, and grief magnifies our emotions. So it's, you know, we, we probably have a lot of mood changes that we don't notice during our day. But right now, everything is so heightened that they are. And they, you know, they get magnified. The other thing that I think it's important to mention in this, while it certainly is this collective grief we are feeling in the air, and it's important to name it because that's where we can find control in it. At the same time, in this pandemic, something has happened that has never happened before. No matter whether it's war or 9-11 or AIDS, we have always been able to come together and bury our dead and have funerals. And this is unprecedented that people can't do that. I had a woman call me whose husband died after 40 years, and she's sitting alone in her apartment with a notice that her grief group got canceled that she was going to attend for the first time. One of the things I set up for so many people who are dealing with the death of a loved one is we have an online group now every day for anyone who needs grief counseling after a death because so many people, grief is isolating on a good day. And to be in actual grief from a death during this is just brutal for people. So information can be found at grief.com for that. And they can join for free every day we're meeting. David, I want to come back to something you said at the beginning, because I think it's important and maybe helps us uh, complete this circle, which is you say there's a power in naming your feelings. I was talking about being angry at the beginning, and you were saying, you know, if pe when people are angry, rather than be thinking, I shouldn't be angry, that's such an unattractive thing. You should really feel your anger. But I think a lot of us also 
particularly some of us who maybe grew up in sort of uh, families where repression of emotion was something you were rewarded for. Um, right, right. We, we, we don't even really know what we feel sometimes. So talk about that. Talk about the idea of naming your feelings. Well, you know, we're, we're a generation of these half-felt emotions. We get angry, but we shouldn't feel it. We get sad, but we shouldn't feel it. And so we just have all these suppressed emotions. And then guess what happens? You get isolated alone during a pandemic with just you and your feelings. And, you know, we often talk about the reality of, um, uh, you know, my mind is like a bad neighborhood that we don't want to go into alone. That, you know, the last place we want to be is stuck in a room with our feelings. And yet they are here. So we definitely have to deal with them. And the truth is, if you just deal with them, they will move past you. They will move through you. And, you know, the anger will be over when you feel it. Uh, the sadness will be over when you feel it and you'll move to the next emotion. I, I think also, uh, I don't know how much you've, I'm sure you've thought about this, um, that the arts are, are there for us, you know, uh, particularly for those of us who maybe have a hard time qualifying our own feelings. What am I feeling right now? What is this? What's going on inside me? I, I've found myself gravitating more to poetry. Uh, lately, it's National Poetry Month starting on Wednesday. Uh, there's music. Those are sometimes ways that we can kind of open up a little bit to feelings that we didn't really have a way of talking about. Right, of course. And this is a new language for a lot of people. And, you know, the more we name this as grief and, you know, realize that anger and sadness and everything comes along with it, the more we can find our power and what's in our control that we, if we can, you know, find a way to accept this reality, then we can take control. We can make sure we're doing the right things. We realize what's out of our control and realize also what's in our control. Uh, so let's end this uh, with a little a snippet of Bertolt Brecht, uh, a little poetry. In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. Uh, here to help us uh, today, we are so uh, happy to have him, is David Kessler, the author of five books, including On Grief and Grieving, Finding the Meaning of Grief Through the Five Stages of Loss, co-authored with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. His latest book is Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. He's the founder of Grief.com. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. I'm going to say thank you to some very important people. Uh, and then we are going to talk about something that came up on our show Friday. And I'm glad we're continuing with this, which is the weird and inappropriate burden that is being placed on Asian Americans for this virus. If you ever find yourself lost in the dark and you can't see, I'll be the light to guide you. Find out what we're made of When we are called to help our friends in need You can count on me Like one, two, three, I'll be there and I know Okay, I've got to say some thank yous and give out some credit. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, is the person who planned this show uh, and uh, found all these great guests. Uh, Kat Pastor is, we're so lucky to have her. She is 
the queen of no drama. She just keeps everything running there in the studio. Everything happens exactly the way it's supposed to happen. And I have yet to see a speck of drama about uh, any of it. Thanks to everybody else behind the scenes who helps out. Katie Tularski, Tim Rasmussen, a great leadership. We've got tech people uh, like Gina Matruda uh, and uh, Joe Koss and uh, TJ Coppola, who've been helping us. TJ Coppola, I think he says it. Uh, and uh, tomorrow, we're going to kind of, this, this will bridge nicely to tomorrow. We are going to talk about sort of why people either do or don't trust science, what the status uh, of people's relationship to science is. One of the reasons that there are all these kind of counter narratives about what ought to be pretty well settled medical science is that we live in a world where there are such things uh, and maybe, well, definitely to our great detriment. All right. So we want to uh, go from there. Uh, to um, and this 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 is a bridge from Friday's show. At the end of Friday's show, one of our panelists, um, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, just talked about being uh, Asian American and how difficult it is right now. And she she said at one point, and, and I can't even walk around my own neighborhood without this kind of thing. And I I probably should have said something right there. My son flagged that the next time I saw my son, he said, is, did she really mean that she can't walk around her own neighborhood without catcalls or something being said or a dirty look or, or something like that? So, yes, the whole history of tragedy is uh, a history rife with the idea of scapegoats. Here to talk about that is Ian Baruma, a professor of human rights and journalism at Bard College, regular contributor to The New York Times and other publications, co-author of several books. Oh, I have the wrong book up on my computer right now. I've got Occidentalism, the West in the eyes of its enemies. Ian, I think you wanted to mention the Churchill book today as well, right? Uh, well, that's the book that's coming out uh, in September. All right. So, and, and uh, certainly, Called the Churchill Complex. Well, we certainly could use a leader like Churchill right now. I don't think such a person is currently in sight. But let's talk about this idea of the scapegoat. We, the first thing we should say is President Trump and uh, his uh, the people who surround him have made no secret of whether or not they are interested in scapegoating this, simply using words like Chinese flu virus, Wuhan virus, foreign virus. This is... Uh, um, there's nothing subtle about this, right? I mean, they they want us to think of this as something that somebody else gave us. Yes, there's nothing subtle about it at all. Um, it's, of course, something that people have always done um, during crises like this when a lot of people are frightened. And uh, the, the easiest thing is to reach for a scapegoat. And uh, this administration, of course, has done that on other occasions. And it partly to distract attention from their own insufficiencies. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about kind of how that plays out. It, it seems to me that there's sort of two ways that this branch can fork. And one of them is the way that it's forking right now. This tragedy came to us because of something other people were do, are doing. And now we are having this tragedy. And the other fork is somebody else is having a tragedy because of things that they were doing. That was a little bit more the case of AIDS and HIV. I think one of the reasons that the Reagan administration was so silent, I think it was seven years before President Reagan said AIDS or HIV, was that it, it could be scapegoated in a different way. It's like people are having this. They made this trouble for themselves. 
Well, that's true. AIDS was somewhat unusual in that it could be tied to particular practices, often to do with needles and, and so on. But of course, a lot of people who suffered from AIDS had, uh, were utterly innocent of any of that. Um, so even there, it's not all that clear. But the effect, of course, is not so different. Um, when you look for scapegoats or, or you look for uh, the wrath of God or that we're being uh, we or other people, people who don't like, are being punished for their sins and so on. That, that kind of reaction um, is common, has been common to mankind, um, you know, ever since there were natural disasters. And that goes back an awful long time. It does seem uh, incredibly risky to do the current thing, just because people are so afraid. This is such a pervasive fear. It affects essentially everybody, or by the time we're done anyway, it will in one way or another have affected everybody. Um, and, and in a situation like that, where people are afraid and occasionally angry, I mean, it is like painting bullseyes. Uh, on a whole group of people who happened to live here in America, happened to be Americans, uh, had absolutely nothing to do with wet markets in Wuhan or anything else that you could possibly trace this back to. I mean, it seems as though we're really putting, I mean, I, I, I could share a, a lot of complaints uh, about George Bush, uh, Bush 43 after 9-11, some of the things that he decided to do. But he was very careful in those early stages to say Muslims living here in this country are not in any sense the enemy. Um, we're just not hearing that right now. Well, that's true. And even then he did say that. But even then, of course, uh, Indian Sikhs with turbans on uh, driving taxis were often accosted by ignorant people thinking that they were um, radical Muslims. But when you speak of risk, yes, you're of course right. Uh, people, there is the risk of violence and, and so on. There is also the risk of, as I said earlier, of, of diverting attention to um, uh, the failures of, of our own government. But the, the political risk to them, of course, um, is perhaps seen in a different light um, by having common enemies, by uh, telling people that um, the government is there to protect them against alien enemies can be a way to rally people around. And, and perhaps uh, the astonishing fact that uh, Trump's uh, popularity uh, rating has gone up in, in recent days shows that at least in the short term, uh, that can have uh, an effect that, you know, they like. Right. Although I actually do think, and this is a separate conversation, I do think the boost in his numbers has more to do with the kind of rally around whatever you can rally around at a time like this. We could put a ham sandwich uh, in place of him and people would rally around that, whatever the kind of the central symbol of leadership is. Um, you know, for I think years, you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> for years, um, I worked in commercial radio and I had a show that either for a while preceded and then after that a show that followed, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, and so I listened to a lot more Rush Limbaugh than a person of my political man would ordinarily do. Uh, and one thing that I became, it became I clear to me. I a good shrink. <laughs> well, I uh, just, uh, I had to just discharge anger, anger by hitting pillows and stuff like that. But, um, you know, 
you saw how much it was a culture of grievance and how much it was aimed at, for example, a traveling salesman who is stuck on traffic, stuck in traffic right now and his car's uncomfortable and he didn't sell as many widgets as he was supposed to today. He's not hitting his targets. He's angry and he's looking for someone to blame. Is it welfare queens? Is it somebody from some other country? Is it somebody who's an atheist or a Muslim? There, There is a, an entire sort of politics and culture that even absent a coronavirus pandemic thrives on that notion of grievance. I'll let you take it away. Well, that's of course true. And that that's why um, even in countries where there are hardly any Jews, you still have anti-Semitism. I mean, if you don't, if you don't have Jews to blame something on, you have to invent them. And so it can be um, anything. And it, it does indeed make people, it's, it's, it's an outlet for, for vague feelings of anger and anxiety. And, uh, but it's very, very dangerous when uh, governments begin to use that, uh, to whip up that kind of atmosphere um, with the idea that it will help them politically. It's, it's, it's one of the most dangerous things they can do. And I think it's one of the most dangerous things this particular administration has been doing, which is that is to encourage violence rather than uh, the opposite. Right. Well, we have to end it there. Oh, we're out of time. Ian Baruma is professor of human rights and journalism at Bard College, regular contributor to The New York Times, the author of several books and co-author of Occidentalism, The West in the Eyes of Its Enemies. Look for the Churchill book coming out soon. Meanwhile, thanks to all of you who listened today. I just maybe want to say one last thing because we should say something positive here towards the end. There are so many things that you really can do and maybe something that you can do today for somebody in your life right now because we all forget to do it and we all assume that the other person knows that this is true but and so that we don't say it. But one thing that you could just say is to somebody, you know what? I'm absolutely going to be here to support you until the day I'm in a hospital on a ventilator or something like that. That's the only thing that could stop me. But other than that, I will be here to give you whatever kind of support I can, whether you need supplies or you need a little cash or you need just somebody to talk to or you need somebody to bring you uh, some takeout or something like that. That's me. That's who I am for you. I am going to be that person for you and nothing can stop me. So say that to somebody. Uh, it's somebody who thinks already that you think already that they know this about you. But if you don't say it, maybe they don't know it. All right. Thanks to everybody who supported me today, especially thanks to Betsy and to Kat. Uh, we will be back tomorrow with a Josh Nalea show about why people either do or do not trust science. <laughs>